This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. From tonight, we can see the um, the end of the road with the paramitas. We're getting close. And tonight we reach one that is, uh, if you're a Zen person, one that sounds particularly juicy. It's dhyana. Uh, dhyana, as some of you know, is Sanskrit word for maybe meditation. Uh, in some traditions it refers to a very specific meditative state, the highest, of course. We wouldn't get excited about it if it were... Number two, and Chinese transliterates dhyana into this, uh, into chan, and depicts it with this very nice character that is composed of simple and altar. And then that word, that, that character carries over into Japanese, but instead of pronouncing it chan, it's pronounced zen. So dhyana, in one way of thinking about it, is simply zen. Or we could say that zen, from one perspective, is simply meditation. And so for in many contexts, zen has been called the meditation school. And it's interesting to me to note that, that when we hear about these huge monasteries in China... Uh, a thousand years ago or fifteen hundred years ago, where they had you know two thousand monks at a time, they weren't Zen monasteries or Pure Land monasteries or whatever that was. It was they were Buddhist monasteries, and then within these monasteries there were specialists. And there were people you might train under, so you'd go to the big. You know, it's like going to the university. You know, you go to university, but then you major in something. You'd go to the huge monastery, but you would major in Zen if that was your thing. Or you might become a sutra expert if that was your thing, or whatever that was. And then eventually we decided that everybody had to be by themselves. And then as soon as that happened, we decided that, well, they can't really be specialists anymore because you can't be all alone and only know one thing, so then everybody has to know everything. Maybe we're just headed back. I don't know. But we have this word dhyana. And it, it, it leads us to all sorts of translation problems, much in the same way that people will argue about whether Buddhism is a religion or not, based entirely on their definition in English of what religion means. We also get stuck on this word dhyana because we really want it to mean something, or we want Zen to mean something. And often we fall to meditation. But then there's someone always in the room who says, no, we can't call it meditation because meditation involves some sort of dualism. You know, you meditate on something, but what we do is more pure than that and, and of a vaster scale than that and blah, blah, blah. So we can't call it meditation. We have to call it something else. And then they'll say, well, let's just, let's just call it Zazen. Well, za means sit, and zen is zen, 
So that doesn't mean anything either. It just means you're sitting with this same translation problem. So we have to kind of unpack this idea of meditation. Acknowledging that there are lots of things that fall under the umbrella of meditation and that some of them are very concentrated and some of them have to do with developing a skill. You're going to, uh, in certain forms of meditation, cultivate a disciplined, focused view. You're going to cultivate clarity or you're going to cultivate compassion, whatever that is. And that's good. It's like going to the gym, right? There are muscles within your mind, and you're working them. And I would never tell someone, oh, don't go to the gym. That's not pure. But in the context of this room, we do talk about meditation in a kind of specific way that isn't about cultivating something. It becomes very difficult to talk about. And the best... Two phrases that come to mind to speak to what my understanding of meditation is. One, it's about being completely honest. And two, and this is just another way of saying the same thing, it's about not averting your eyes. And that's all it is. But that kind of radical honesty is so unheard of that at least for me, language kind of fails me to, to describe it in a skillful way. I'll try. <laughs> there are these practices in the larger Buddhist world, not, they never really carried over into Zen, of examining the body. And the idea was that we get attached to the body and that we need to see through that attachment. And so we should really meditate on the impurity of the body or, or the nature of it. Right? We should think about what's really going on. Not, oh, he looks nice or, hey, I look pretty good today. But, but peel it back and look inside and see that there are a lot of things going on in there that maybe we wouldn't want to uh, look at while we're eating dinner. Those instructions will say, Consider what it looks like to decay. Consider what your organs look like, independent of the body. Consider that you are just a big sack of fluids. No different from what you might find at a a butcher shop. And these are really interesting practices. But on one level, I dislike them. And the reason I dislike them is because I think that there's there's an idea that the outcome is a foregone conclusion. That you will learn to find your own body to be kind of repellent. But I don't think that's honest. I think that if we spend enough time looking at this, what we find is that it's really interesting. (laughs) But it's also not what we expected. It's not what we think of 
at first thought. In the same way, we come in here and we sit down and we face a wall and what we're looking at, what we're doing is we're having an encounter with our mind. And on one level, what we're doing is exactly that same thing. It's that same practice of the body. We're watching how it really works. Right? Not how we want it to work. Not what we think it does. What it really does. And if it's not what we expect, it can be repellent. It can be deeply upsetting. If we are completely honest and we really just watch, then we see that we are maybe, maybe not as deep as we hoped we were or as pure as we would like to be. Sometimes someone else's suffering comes to mind and we don't feel the way we think we're supposed to feel about that suffering. We think, why don't I care more about that? What's wrong with me? Why, when left to my own devices, sitting in this posture, facing a wall, do I sometimes have fantasies or images come to mind that I would never share with another person? Ever. What is going on? And our instinct, our very human and very natural instinct, is to look away from that. And we can do it in a hundred ways while we sit still. We can tell a story about it. And the easiest story is, that's good or that's bad. That's good and that's bad are both lies. They're both ways of averting your eyes. They're both ways of saying, I don't want to look at this. I'll give it my best by looking at my idea about this. (laughs) That's within my comfort zone. Or we avert our eyes by climbing into whatever it is that we see. And so a dream arises, a fantasy, a hope, a memory, whatever it is. And we say, you know what? I'm going to look at just this one thing instead of the panorama of what's in front of me. Because it's too much to hold. Just on the most mundane level, we know this if we sit on top of a mountain and we try to look out on a valley and hold that whole valley within our field of vision and not choose one thing to look at. These are the instructions I was given for sitting. And it is just as hard in real life as it is on a cushion. Your brain is dying, dying (laughs) to grab Because grabbing is safe. Grabbing is fun. Or it's painful in a way that we're already comfortable with. 
So we go back at, to a particular kind of suffering. We go back to a particular kind of memory. We go back to something that we've turned over and over and over and over again. Because nothing there will surprise us. It looks like we're doing the hard work. But it's like we're just flipping the same pancake over and over again. What's on this side? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're experts at this. No one needs to teach you all the tricks of meditation. If you sit for 30 minutes one day, you'll discover most of them. And you'll discover an aptitude for them. And then you'll spend the rest of your life trying not to do them. It comes too easily. We have this opportunity, always. And as I said, Zazen is it's sitting Zen. That suggests that there are lots of other kinds. We can have this encounter. We can have this honesty. We can make this choice not to avert our eyes all the time. But it is hard. It is so hard. And so, we create this controlled environment and we sit here and we try it. We try to do it here in hopes that we might be able to do it there. And why? What's the point? I have my own theory about it, and it's fairly simple. I think we need to be skillful in the world, for whatever that means. And that what we get out of this honesty is we learn what we really have to work with. That's all. We want more than that. I've always wanted more than that. We, we sit down to meditate and we hope, we hope, we hope, we hope that one day we'll get a superpower. The bad and beautiful news, and I've said it over and over again, is that anything you're looking to acquire through meditation, anything that you're looking to acquire through spiritual practice, is something you're looking at right now that you're breathing right now and that you're feeling right now. And the extent to which that doesn't feel true is the extent to which you are skillful at keeping it at bay. But we don't want to believe that this is all there is. That's the worst news you can ever tell to anyone. This is it. And we see this in superhero stories. I, I was laughing as I was coming here, thinking about it. We, we, 
We go through our lives feeling helpless or feeling unskillful or feeling like we, we just don't have what it takes. And then one day we get bitten by a radioactive spider and find that we can climb walls with our fingers. And that's what was missing. Right? That's the piece of the puzzle that had not yet been put into place. Right? Ah! Now I can serve humanity because I share certain physical characteristics with cockroaches. Yes! It makes no sense. But we think if there was just one thing, if there could be a surprise... If just one day I could have that explosion of the mind while I sit and I would wake up and I would see the things that I couldn't see before. That's what's missing. We don't get to have that. I guess I can't say that definitively, but I say with some confidence, we don't get to have that. And so we're left with trying to understand what it is that we do hold. When you go out and you face the world, when you face adversity, when you face suffering, who are you when you do that? Do you know? And can you see the overlap between what you have and what others have? There's another way of talking about meditation, of course, that gets into all this stuff about you know, seeing the nature of reality and, and uh, recognizing interdependence and all that. And that's a very beautiful conversation. But I don't think it's the useful conversation. And the reason is because then I'm offering you another foregone conclusion. And you'll sit and you'll face the wall and you'll think, if I just concentrate hard enough, it will feel just like he said it would. And that's dishonest. I love that these are all called perfections. I don't think I've described any of them in terribly optimistic terms. But... That's my, my clumsy understanding of what we do here. I'll stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.